Harup acknowledges the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on. The Bunurong, Bunurang, and Wurangi Wodurang peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to their elders past, present, and emerging, and extend this to all First Nations people. Globally, today we are faced with the most complex sustainable development challenges in history. So how do we solve these challenges? One thing's for sure, we can't do it alone. Welcome to Arab's podcast, Sustainable Forces. It's a podcast about people joining forces to help solve the most complex sustainable development challenges. My name is Dr. Michelle Dickinson. I'm an engineer, nanotechnologist, and science communicator, and I am on a mission to uncover how people are working together to positively impact the planet. Today, we are talking about water, specifically how our city's infrastructure can prepare for lots of it. Around the globe, cities are experiencing never-before-seen rainfall, leading to catastrophic flooding events. In fact, 44% of all disaster events worldwide have been flood-related, and 700 million people live in places where the maximum daily rainfall has increased. But our cities are not just concrete jungles. Every blade of grass, every tree, pond, lake, and lump of soil together form vital infrastructure. As cities face increasing threats from climate change, including heavy rainfall, they need to understand their natural infrastructure and how to enhance it. While cities have a natural sponge quality, we can improve this through interventions. Natural infrastructure is highly effective in managing flood water and brings far wider benefits that can contribute positively to biodiversity and carbon reduction. To help us make sense of all of this water, I'm joined by Daniel Lambert, Executive Manager, Sustainable Infrastructure Solutions at Unity Water, who's joining us from Queensland, Australia. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Michelle. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. And also joining us on the podcast today is Mark Fletcher, who is Arab's Global Water Leader, and he's joining us from Leeds in the United Kingdom today. Hi, Mark. Hi, Michelle. Great to be here too. Okay, so often on the podcast, we talk about collaboration, but you two know each other in real life, right? Even though you're on opposite sides of the world right now. So how do you know each other? Have you worked together personally before? Tell us a little bit about your relationship. I spent about 16 years working for Arup and joined joined Arup in Melbourne. And shortly after I joined the organisation, my first memory of Mark is on a train trip uh, between Leeds and London. Uh, where we were talking about uh, water aid and water and sanitation challenges around the world. And we both shared a similar passion. That that was the start of a journey with Mark. And Mark, what, what's your memory of Daniel? <laughs> oh, it's been a real pleasure. And there's some people you know when you first meet them, you know that they're going to be friends for life. Um, I'm at 35 years at Arup. And uh, I love the organisation. And it's because I meet people like Daniel. It's an inspiration. I'm so excited to talk to you both. Mark, I'm going to start with you, though, because this is a relatively new topic for me. And that is the declaration of something called a spongy city. I have never called my city spongy before. Yeah. So before we get too technical, can you help us understand what you mean by a spongy city? Well, I'll have a go. So think about a sponge being able to soak water up. 
in nature that would be soil and vegetation, things like trees and lakes and parks, things that absorb water. But concrete and brick and glass, they don't absorb water. So if we have more water than our sponge can soak up, then we get water flow over, flowing over land and we get flooding. If our city has lots of impermeable areas, so we could think about concrete and tarmac, buildings, roads, it's less spongy and it's more susceptible to flood, flooding. Why is that important? Well, because our climate's changing and the drainage systems in our cities are being overwhelmed by more extreme rainfall events, we need to try and increase the sponginess in our cities, create more green space, see if we can manage, rather than having impermeable services, have impermeable ones that soak water up. Well, that's a great explanation. Thank you. You made that much easier for me. Okay, now we can get started into who you both are. So Daniel, I'm going to come back to you over there in Australia. Can you tell us a little bit about Unity Water and what your role is there? Yeah, thanks, Michelle. So Unity Water is a water utility that looks after three council areas in southeast Queensland. We look after Noosa, Sunshine Coast and Moreton Bay. And interestingly enough, the Sunshine Coast and Moreton Bay are two of the fastest council areas in terms of growth uh, in Australia. So there's huge challenges in terms of rapidly forming cities in our part of the world, uh, rapidly forming urbanisation. Um, but also, interestingly enough, you talked about increased extremes. My first week at Unity Water this year, Michelle, was the wettest week in history. So we're seeing those extremes and having to respond to those very rapidly. Yeah, and I keep hearing these one in a hundred year events happening, almost one in every 10 years. So Mark, you must also be across this. Can you talk to us a little bit about your role and how Arup has been collaborating around this issue of spongy cities and this excess water we have? Yes, Michelle, uh, I'm the global water leader at Arup and we uh, try and uh, lead thought leadership around the world on these uh uh, essential challenges facing us, rapid urbanism and this, uh, these increasing extremes in climate. So what we've been doing, we've developed an approach to look at how spongy a city is. It's a sort of snapshot. We've looked at cities around the world, um, trying to evaluate whether one's spongier than others and trying to understand what it is, uh, the characteristics of a city uh, so that we can identify what we could do to increase that sponginess. Now, increasing sponginess, you could you could um, uh, consider, is a bit like increasing the resilience. So the more water we soak up, the less water is available to flood. And that's really what we're trying to do. And uh, we looked at uh, seven cities around the world, um, Auckland, Nairobi, Singapore, Mumbai, New York, Shanghai and London, and we looked at those cities in terms of um, uh, how much green space there is, how much blue space within the, within the city, what's the sort of soil characteristics, and uh, used that to come up with a, a sort of an index, if you like, or a ranking. And, uh, and in that ranking, Auckland came top of the ranking, and in that ranking, London came bottom of the ranking. So it gives us an idea of a really spongy city or a not too spongy city. So as an Aucklander who's sitting in Auckland right now, I like winning. So thank you for helping us to win something I didn't even know was a category, which is the spongiest city. Is there a, how do you measure this? Is there a sponge index? Like, are you quantifying this as a, I don't know how you measure in sponges, I'll be honest with you. Yeah. 
So what we've, what we've got, we've got a digital tool that allows us to look at um, the land use within a city. We, we developed that approach on Shanghai, which you can, you know, it's a huge city, um, but it identifies different typologies in the city. So the green space, the blue space, car parks, things like that. So we use that to assess what the land use is. And then we also have a look at what the soil is. So you can imagine sandy soils can soak up lots of water, but clay soils don't soak up very much water. So we're looking at this combination of a number of things to come up with our our ranking, our index, if you like. Perfect. Now, Daniel, we're going to move over to you. And as we think about building our infrastructure, one of the things we focused on in this podcast is sustainability. Now, I know your organization focuses really strongly on sustainability. So can you chat to us about some of the sustainable infrastructure solutions that you're working on and how these will help to impact the sponginess? Let's say an example of Queensland's Sunshine Coast, which I think you know a lot about. Yes, uh, thanks, Michelle. And I think just touching on uh, the sponge city concept and one of the benefits of it is around not just uh, flood resilience, but also treating water. And one of the things that we have as an objective at Unity Water is to reach net zero carbon, which many water utilities around the globe do now. But we also have a target for net zero nutrients into dis- being discharged into waterways by 2050. And when we think about that target, one of the ways we can achieve it is by improving the treatment quality from our wastewater treatment plants. But what I wanted to talk about today is that the other way we can help achieve that is by uh, collaborating with councils, collaborating with government agencies, collaborating with developers to look at um, schemes around nutrient offsets. And uh, And when I talk about nutrient offsets, uh, I'm talking about schemes like wetlands, creating blue-green space within developments, uh, and also um, setting aside parts of um, potential cities to to have those green spaces. And one of the interesting things that's happening in the Sunshine Coast is a collaboration that we have with uh, the Queensland Government, the Department of Environment and Science, uh, and also the Sunshine Coast Council to create what we're calling a blue heart. And it's really looking at a floodplain uh, area within the region and transitioning that from what was traditionally sugarcane farming into uh, natural wetlands, natural treatment systems, but also an educational type precinct for the community that they can enjoy that helps treat the water helps manage the, the flood risk for the region uh, and, and helps deliver community outcomes. So what I would really wanted to highlight is when we, when we think about these sponge cities, there's so many benefits for so many different stakeholders and, more importantly, for the community. Very good. I like that indeed. Now, Mark, we're going to come back to you because um, you touched on something before where you talked about you know being able to use digital technology and computers to analyze some of this space, whether it's the land space or your green space. Um, so how, how important is digital technology, um, number one, in helping enable nature-based solutions? And, and are there any projects you can chat to us about where digital tech has really helped with this? Yes, the I, I mentioned Shanghai before. It's probably worth a deeper dive into that. That was a global competition to look at a drainage master plan for Shanghai, 
And uh, we originally envisaged it was going to take us about nine months to actually assess and characterise the city before, so that we understood the city before we started developing solutions. But um, using uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence, we had a lateral approach where we were looking at uh, Google Earth, the uh, Google Maps, and we managed to uh, analyse that in a, a in weeks rather than in uh, over six months. The, the advantage of that meant we had more time to fo- focus on what the actual issues were and how we could come up with solutions. So I, I think um, it, it has a real role to play. And we've taken that approach now from Shanghai, applied it in Albania to the capital Tirana to develop an orbital forest. And we're now also using that in Mansfield in the UK, uh, where we've justified over £70 million of investment for green infrastructure. So I think digital, it's sort of unlocking the potential which is really important. And I guess around that, we've talked a little bit um, about education, Daniel, and and collaboration, um, but has digital technology helped to play any role in some of the work you've done? And have you seen it's a game changer or is it just a tool that you use to help enhance some of the stuff that you're already doing? I think think like many water utilities, we're, we're increasingly looking at digital and how we use it to understand uh, our system understand the, the water quality, uh, both of the influent coming into our treatment plants, but also the outfalls into the waterways. Uh, I think that the application of it from a um, a blue green perspective and and the perspective that Mark was talking about in Shanghai is one that could be adopted in a number of Australian cities, and it's really uh, something that we need to consider at at scale and really work to bring multiple multiple stakeholders together to look at it uh, not just as a water utility or as a council, but as a collective on a catchment-based solution approach. Multiple stakeholders, something we talk about a lot, actually. And we used to work in these silos and we've learned the power of collaboration. Uh, one thing we really focus on in this podcast is the importance of partnership and working with others. Um, and Daniel, you mentioned it before, the Blue Heart Project. Um, and I know you've been working closely with Arup on that. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that Blue Heart Project and maybe the collaboration process that's been involved? Yeah, so fundamentally, the the Blue Heart Heart Project is is a focus on uh, one of the areas in the Sunshine Coast. Um, it's an area of more than five thousand hectares in a natural floodplain on the Maruchi River catchment, and the project area includes approximately fourteen hundred hectares of public land. And in, within that, we've got a Coolan Creek Environmental Reserve Network. Uh, we've got Yandina Creek wetland, etc. and uh, we're looking at the precinct and looking at how do we uh, keep the precinct green rather than, uh, as you say, turn it into a, a concrete space. Uh, we're looking at how to generate renewable energy from it and how to create open space uh, usages for the, for the community. So the Andina wetland, for example, which is part of it, when we create a wetland, uh, if we do it the right way, it's not just to treat stormwater. It is... Uh, to create biodiversity for for different flora and fauna. It's to create community uh, facilities to enjoy and it's to create educational spaces so we can improve people's awareness about the environment, about the impact that water has and how to create a sustainable future uh, for the region. 
and collaboration for you, Mark. Um, I know you have a bit of a story about the Olympics that perhaps has some collaboration in there too. Could you talk a little bit about that? I, I can. And uh, I was going to say, never more important that we are talking about these issues as I'm sitting in a heat wave and one of the benefits of nature-based solutions are, are city cooling, which, which is really relevant. Um, in terms of the Olympics, that's uh, coming together with common purpose uh, across multiple agencies and being aware of the Olympics coming to Brisbane and the, you know, the Sunshine Coast, Gold Coast, using and there's going to be venues. It's really important that we can embrace concepts that can increase the resilience. Um, we can we could have a, a Green Olympics, something where we're we're uh, really working together uh, with a, with a, a sort of collective. Uh, consultancy, agency, authority, um, working with uh, Secwater, QUU, uh, Gold, uh, Gold Coast, Unity, all the rest, um, to learn from each other, but work together and everybody to play their part. And we've seen the experience of doing that in London, where we were looking at particularly at the legacy that comes after London, so that we had a flood-resilient uh, River Lee, uh, following the London Olympics. We had created green infrastructure and meadows that have dramatically increased the biodiversity. But we've also regenerated the city and created a huge number of green jobs. It's really important and I'd really like to see the opportunity grasped with uh, the Olympics in Brisbane and look forward to uh, playing our part within that. It's great. And it's great that we've learned lots of lessons. Daniel, talk to me a little bit about your experience for the Olympics. No, I think it's it's a fantastic point, Mark. And there's lots of lessons that we can learn from around the world when we develop new Olympics. And Arab's obviously been involved in some fantastic work in London and elsewhere. And as we look at Southeast Queensland, there are there's a real focus on having a net zero carbon Olympics. But how about we also have a net zero nutrient into waterways Olympics? How about we also have uh, an Olympics which uh, creates um, the same post-development flows as the pre-development flows. So we're looking holistically, not just at energy and carbon, but we're looking at overall sustainability outcomes and, and bringing together that digital thinking that Mark was talking about, bringing together some of the thinking around water reuse and, and bringing together some of the thinking around collaboration that, that's so important. Yeah, and, you know, it's always easy for the bad stories to get the press. So we look at flood water, we look at, but what you're talking about is actually increasing biodiversity, increasing education. Those are all things that actually the positives that maybe we don't talk about enough. So, um, Daniel, I'm going to stick with you because I'm pretty sure there'll be people listening who really want to learn more about how to incorporate sustainable design principles into their infrastructure projects. So do you have any key tips that you can give to help people on this journey? Great question, Michelle. And obviously it probably depends on the perspective of the individual of whether they're a developer or a water utility or a council or the type of organization they are. But I think as organizations, we need, we, we need to be really clear on what we want to achieve and aligning our objectives uh, to, to frameworks such as the UN Sustainable Development Goals is a great way to do that but also prioritizing and developing frameworks for measuring uh, those benefits. So 
often when often uh, as as organizations whether private sector or public sector our decision making process can be very driven by lowest cost but uh, i think we need to think more holistically about our future and think more holistically about the overall value that we're generating and develop frameworks for measuring the sustainability outcomes, uh, measuring the whole of life cycle costs as opposed to just the capital costs uh, and using those to help uh, drive a business case that we can get support for within our organization and, and with our broader stakeholders. Mm, so what would some of those measurables be? Is this what you were talking about, you know, nutrients or carbon commitments, or can you give us some some tangibles that we could start measuring? Yeah, definitely. Um, as I as I mentioned before, when we're talking about uh, nutrient uh, net zero nutrients into waterways, um, how do we measure the cost of doing that uh, through a um, higher degree of wastewater treatment, um, as opposed to uh, installing a wetland or delivering a riverbank restoration process uh, to deliver the same outcome? So. At the moment, we're looking closely at riverbank restoration projects as opposed to necessarily uh, treatment plant upgrades because it will deliver better outcomes to the community at a lower cost. I see. Now, Mark, I'm going to ask you for your top tips too. I know you're currently sitting in a heat wave, so it might not sound appropriate to maybe talk about flooding. Um, but for those of us in the Southern Hemisphere where it's winter and cold, can you talk to us about some of the key actions that we can take around water resilience? I know that Australia has had quite a lot of flooding recently and it's probably top of mind. Well, I, I think the important thing is there's no silver bullet to this. An increasing resilience is a, it's a challenge. We, we can think about, do we have impermeable roads or could we have permeable roads? Uh, to, uh, the idea of urban forests, so can we plant more trees within our urban space and increase city meadows? In New York, I think they put about 5,000 bioswales. These are not small like pocket parks into the, uh, it, uh, into the um, urban space. Uh, Thinking about, um, you know, could we capture our roof water? Does it have to run off? Could we have more green roofs? Could we have more green facades? I think in Italy, they created a building that it's, it's called Bosco Verticale. It's the vertical forest. And whilst there may be some maintenance issues, this is starting to think about how can we capture uh, more water and how can we slow it down? We all have hard standing drives. Could we replace those with permeable services like gravel. You know, it's, it's just thinking about uh, whether we have high-risk high items that we maybe move upstairs to the first floor rather than on the ground floor where it might be vulnerable. Or we might move our car uh, uh, out in advance of an event occurring, or indeed ourselves and our families. There's common sense, but awareness has a, a significant role to play within this. We've developed frameworks at a city level to try and to try and uh, capture this, and they've been I think they've been really effective with uh, organisations like the Lloyd's Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation, where we've tried to look at a city scale, learning from things like Cape Town, where they had their their uh, they they had their huge uh, drought, and Miami, uh, and I'm thinking about those places because one's low lying and it's coastal, and we can think about. Um, impacts of hurricanes and 
we could think about sea level rise and saline intrusion. And uh, what we're trying to do is increasingly work more in tune with nature and come up with solutions that if we peeled the city away, um, we could work in tune with what would naturally occur. Um, in many ways, the, the concept of sponge city, we're, we're trying to sort of prompt people to say, just remember the solution will be us going back in time and working with nature to make up for the fact that we've spent most of our time developing and ignoring nature. And all we've, we've picked up a residual burden because we've done that. And I think this, the answer is in um, working back, uh, improving the biodiversity and greening our cities. I think that's absolutely fundamental. And I think we can all play a personal role in that. Um, as an Aucklander, we, um, or Auckland Council, have a one million trees project where we are trying to plant a million trees. Daniel, is tree planting something you think we should all maybe go out and do to help? Oh, definitely. I think raising awareness, uh, there's lots of benefits of programs like tree planting, both in terms of the outcomes, but also um, getting the community engaged and, and aware of the challenge and I think the other, the other, when we're talking about raising awareness, I think the other opportunity is for us to, as consultants, as water utilities, as councils, to engage more effectively with developers and and help raise awareness. There's a lot of evidence in Australia and elsewhere now that creating precincts uh, which have blue green infrastructure in them uh, generate a much higher level of uh, value per square meter of land. Uh, than than precincts that don't have those spaces. So, uh, and therefore, the developers can make more money overall with the right type of sustainable precinct that's developed, as opposed to traditional way of maximum number of lots at the minimum price. So, I think we need to think holistically about value and and help raise awareness with developers, with the community about the benefits of of uh, of sponge cities and and the outcomes that they achieve. And Mark, a lot of us will probably walk past a lot of this infrastructure without even realising mm. it. I know here in Auckland, we have a lot of what we call rain gardens, which are specifically designed, yeah. but just look like a patch of grass with a tree on it. So is there anything we should be looking out for to be able to see that we have a spongy design city? I think uh, get a, a, an essence of, does it look and feel green? I think in Philadelphia, they have a campaign called Green City Clean Waters, where people just post onto a website, you know, I've just converted a parking lot or I've just, I've just put three extra trees in my back garden. It's, I think it's all about everybody contributing small um, interventions as well as the larger scale ones that the city authority or the water company might get involved in. And for me, it's a bit like building a quilt and starting to fill all the pieces in. And everybody has a role to play at whatever scale that might be. And that goes down to literally a water butt to capture water and greening part of your garden. So uh, if it looks natural, then you're going in the right direction. Well, that's a lovely note to leave it on all of us, whether we're infrastructure people or just random listeners who are interested in water. We all have our part to play in this big patchwork quilt that is our spongy city. Sadly, that's all the time we have for today on our episode. And thank you for listening. I really want to thank Daniel and Mark for all of your insights. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. It's been great fun. Thanks, Michelle. 
So you can access the links to all of the projects that we have discussed in our show notes if you want to learn more about what we've talked about today. Stay tuned for our next episode in two weeks to discuss ways to make impact and become a change maker. And make sure you subscribe to Sustainable Forces on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite streaming service. Oh, 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 oh